So, hey, everybody. I'm Sherry Falco, and I'm coming to you from New York. And we're just so glad you tuned in today to the Grace Chronicles. Our guest today is Bob Dudley, and he's going to tell us his journey of a project that God told him to do and exactly what it took in order to get it started. So thank you, Bob, for being with us today. So why don't you tell us about this, you know, when God gives you a word and says, you know, it's like building the ark, you know, (laughs) when God tells you to do something. And by the way, for all you listeners, God still speaks. Okay. So um, what happened? You know, what happened? What did God tell you to do? And Well, I tell you, it's it's been a long journey and a short journey, both. The long journey is in January of 2016. God kind of put on my heart to launch a Bible college. So I wrote out the business plan. I thought I had some backers to financially support it all lined up and then nothing happened. And and for a month, two months, a, a year, I, I'm kind of expecting this thing to launch and it's not. So I kind of put it on the shelf. And then April of this year, three different People I know, uh, my my spiritual mentor uh, and two business partners I have, all three in different parts of the country, different parts of my life, all called me the same week. And each one of them asked me the question, so whatever happened to that college that you were going to launch? And I'm like, God, is this a hint? Am I supposed to launch this college now? So I start reworking the business plan, ready for him to say launch. And I meet. an individual here in Pennsylvania that had a lot of connections. They were a connector. If you've ever read, um, uh, I don't even remember the name of the book, but anyways, they're, they're connectors. So she says, there's this person down in Florida that you need to meet. Her name is um, Crystal Parker, and she's the president of the United States Christian Chamber of Commerce. They're doing a, a movement down in central Florida, mostly Orlando area, uh, to start doing outreach to the marketplace. And she, and she says, I think your college would fit right in with what they're doing. So I get a hold of Crystal and we get on a Zoom call and we talk for over two hours. We were like instantly connected, uh, brother and sister. It was amazing. And uh, she asked me where I was planning on putting the college. And I told her, uh, I'm looking at, I was looking at first California, Texas and Florida, places where it was below the snow belt, because it was going to be an evangelism college and people needed to be out on the streets talking to people all year long. So I had to have nice weather where people are going to be outside. So we finally narrowed it down to Florida thinking, well, also we would like to have a large tourist population so that we can guarantee we have different people to talk to all the time and not go knocking on the same doors in the same neighborhoods for 20 years. So, uh, so, so I'm let thinking. Just, hang on. Okay. So let me just back up for our listeners because you know right. a lot of our listeners are not familiar with some of the language that you're using. So when you said like outreach to the marketplace, what gotcha. what exactly do you mean by that? Well, basically, uh, you know, if you've ever read the Gospels, Jesus not only did he say the gospel, which is uh, faith in him leads to heaven. But he also was very big. Most of his sermons were in the marketplace where he could talk to the common people. He would heal people. He would uh, 
you know, make sure they were fed. A lot of people have read the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Those were just ordinary people. A great show to watch is The Chosen. Uh, because you can actually see how his ministry was in the marketplace. It wasn't in some big giant cathedral or synagogue or something. It was out where the normal people are. And that's what the uh, Christian Chamber of Commerce wants to do. They want to make sure that other business people in the area know that they're there if you need help, if you need a helping hand, if you need just prayer, if you need uh, maybe some coaching on something, they just want to be out there yeah. showing God's love to people. So instead of being separate, right, in inside church walls, you want to be where right. everybody is, just sharing the love of Jesus and the message of Jesus. Absolutely. You know, people say they're going to church, but what they don't realize is the Bible says we are the church. The, what we call church is just a building where we meet on Sundays, but really we're the church and we're supposed to be out there among the people. And that's what they wanted to do. And uh, as I uh, go over what our college is going to graduate, you'll see that we're really absolutely in line with that idea. So she uh, gives me a pitch for going to Orlando because that's where she, Crystal lives and that's where they're starting their thing. So I, So before we got off the Zoom call, I was sold. We decided right there that we were going to do Orlando. So that was July, August. Uh, my wife and I flew down to Orlando, met with her, met with several people in the Christian Chamber of Commerce. And here's where it started becoming supernatural. Because I knew I wanted to start a college. I kind of knew what the majors were going to be. But I and I've been a professor at one Bible college. I was a professor at the United States Naval Academy. And I was a professor at a place called the National Cryptologic School. It was a classified school at NSA. So I had teaching experience. I didn't have any experience running a college. I had no idea what that was. I just knew I had to do it. So I go down there and they start introducing me probably to 30 people in one day. I had meeting after meeting after meeting. One of the most important ones at the time was with a pastor, um, Joseph Thompson, who uh, at one time had the largest church in Orlando before he started working with missionaries. And uh, he met with me and my idea was, you know, to start a college takes several million dollars to buy a facility or build a facility. It's, it's, it's very money intensive. So a friend of mine suggested that I see if there's a church down there that would let me use some of their facilities during the week to start the college until I could grow large enough to actually get our own facility. So uh, in comes Pastor uh, Thompson. He actually, we met for lunch. He said, uh, yeah, I know the perfect place that they definitely have the room to host you and they will. And it's in an area where a lot of people need to hear about Jesus. And uh, believe it or not, my wife and I are sitting there with him at lunch. He takes out his phone. He says, hey, Dave, I got this guy that needs to talk to you about using part of your church. And then he hands me the phone. And uh, miracle start. This pastor, we went and met with his staff. Uh, he gave us a section of the church that had its own entrance, had four classrooms, an office, and its own restroom, all enclosed of itself. I mean, how would I find that? And it was just handed to me. So uh, hang on. So, but yeah. So I just want to get our <laughs> listeners so that they can stay with us during this conversation. So, I mean, we all get ideas that pop into our head. Right. You know what I mean? So <laughs> can you, so do you think that this supernatural provision, so you stepped out to start this, right? Believing right. it's gone. 
So do you believe that this is just confirmation that it is God? I mean, how do people know whether it's God or not? Something pops into my head and it's a it's really that's a great question. I would suggest that people read a book called Four Keys to Hearing God's Voice by Mark Verkler. And it's a book on answering that very question. How do I know if I have an instantaneous thought that it's God or the devil or just me or the pizza I had last night? You know, what is causing that? And uh, and he answers that. He talks about getting yourself into a calm, quiet place, maybe listening to some worship music or, or something like that. And then um, a, a visualizing actually maybe sitting down with Jesus someplace, maybe a story in the Bible, you insert yourself before other people show up and assist you and him. And you ask him a question and then you sit there and wait for an answer. And uh, I'll let you read the book to find out how you know when you get that answer, whether it's him. Part of it is talking to more mature Christians to see if it made sense or not. But yeah, uh, once I've learned to use the techniques that Mark Verkler points out in this book, it became more and more clear when it was just my fantasy or fancies or whether it was uh, just bad thoughts or whether it actually was hearing from God. Um, let me give you a, for instance, I was, uh, Kathy's dad was in a nursing home here in, in town. And uh, one day I was journaling, that's what we call it, uh, speaking with Jesus. And, uh, and usually what I do is I have a business meeting with him every morning. What do you wanna do? And can I go out and do part of that? You and have a business so, meeting with Jesus. Oh, every morning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we we actually, I signed a joint venture agreement. This is kind of cool. I signed a joint venture agreement. I talk about this in my book called God's Partner. Uh, a joint venture agreement with God where it lays out what our goals are. It lays out roles and responsibilities for him and me and compensation for him and me. Now, uh, this was my my company called Life Changers 180, my Christian coaching company where I coach Christian entrepreneurs. So one goal was to help as many Christian entrepreneurs as we can. The other goal came from him, and it comes from the book of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And there's two things that he wants. He wants you to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. His kingdom to me is growing the body of Christ. So for me as an evangelist, where I go out and talk to people about Jesus and get them to join into the church and, and put their faith in Christ, that's building God's kingdom. And his righteousness, all throughout the Bible, he says, become more and more like Jesus. Or as you grow in Christ, you'll become more and more like him. And that's seeking his righteousness. So uh, Life Changers 180 has three goals now, since I partner with God. Uh, getting as many Christians as we can as entrepreneurs, getting as many people into the kingdom as we can, and me trying to grow closer and closer to him every single day. So that's our goals. Our responsibilities, uh, Proverbs 21:31 says, prepare the horse for battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. And what that tells me is I do what he says. That's my responsibility. His responsibility is to make it successful. So I've taken that load off my shoulders. I don't worry about success. I worry about making him happy. And he takes care of the success. And it's amazing, first, how much stress goes out of your life. And second, how successful you actually will be. And then compensations. In Malachi chapter 3, he tells us uh, the tithe belongs to the Lord. And if you give him that 10% off the top up front, he will bless you more than you could ever imagine. And, uh, and let me tell you my tithing story. 
25 years ago this April, um, Kathy and I were married. And the very first night we got on our knees in, in the hotel uh, and, and prayed and dedicated our lives and our wedding and our marriage to God. And um, we were both highly successful people, both of us making major six figures. We, and it was just the two of us. We didn't even have a dog at the time. And, uh, but we, neither one of us gave money to the church or tithe. And, and God laid on our hearts that we're supposed to do that. As soon as we dedicated the marriage to him, he said, well, here's the first thing I want you to do. And uh, we felt as much money as we were making, we felt we couldn't give the tithe. We couldn't afford. For us, that would have been about 2000 a month. So what we decided was we were going to get $50 the first month, then 100 150 200 and up at 50 until we hit the 2000 right? kind of wading into the pool on the shallow side. Well, what happened was we never reached our tithe and we were given over $5,000 a month. And he kept upping and upping and upping what we were making and we couldn't keep up with him. So Malachi is so true. I, it's amazing uh, if you do what he says. You know, giving tithe is the only command in the Bible with a dare. Mm. He says, I dare you to do this and see what happens. And I tell you what, as little faith as we had that we could do it, he still met us where we were and brought us along. And and it was amazing. As a matter of fact, when we got up to uh, way over 5000 a month, I was in church one day and I says, God, I'll do whatever you want. You just have to tell me what it is. And he says, I don't really want your money. That was a lesson. What I want is I want you to tell other people about Jesus. And that was how I became an evangelist and went out. And started well that's a great story this is a story within a story i love this but yeah. that's about provision too and you were telling us about the supernatural provision now for the college mm. the, the project that god has you working on yeah and uh and what's interesting is uh if i could go back and tell part of this back in 2016 when i started the idea of the college and he put the brakes on actually doing it then. I thought, well, I'll put money away. I was a real estate investor at the time, doing very well. So we were putting a lot of money in the bank, getting ready for the college. So back in April, we had $500,000 in the bank or should have had $500,000 in the bank, let me put it that way, to go to the college. Plus this house I live in is completely paid off and worth 500,000. So we thought if we moved to Florida, we would have a million dollars to start the college. Well, if you call uh, a few minutes ago, I said, uh, my father-in-law, I think I was talking about my father-in-law moved in with us. Oh, I was going to tell you that story. I never got to. Anyways, he winds up moving in with us uh, from a nursing home. And uh, we, three years ago, we started taking care of him. We built an apartment in our basement. We had all of his furniture moved from Ohio to here. Uh, he owned a farm that they were afraid they were going to lose. So I paid cash for the farm. And long story short, the $500,000 was gone, spent on him. And then two weeks later, when the last bit of that money's out, two weeks later, he says, okay, now I'm ready to start the college. So I'm thinking in my head, all right, well, at least I still have the house if I sell that. So then uh, we went to the doc, took him on a doctor's appointment. He's 89 years old. And the doctor says, you know, uh, I know you guys want to move down to Florida to do this college thing eventually, but I'm afraid your father-in-law, he can't move that far. He won't make it. So one of the aides that takes care of him agreed to have her and her husband move into our house after we move out, and they'll stay here 
for the rest of his life, be it a year or 10 years, and take care of him. So that's the good news. The bad news is now we can't sell the house. So I'm going down there with zero. And, uh, and, but I just know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's putting this together and he's getting ready to just show off with how we're going to fund this. Well, you're and not I'm always really sure. well, actually, I just, I always found it puzzling, but when he sends the disciples out, he says, take nothing with you. Mm-hmm. Right. And he sends them out with, with nothing. And I always looked at that, but then I thought, you know, I mean, how else is he going to show that he's trustworthy, right? Mm. That he's faithful in providing. If he sends you out, then he's going to provide for what he's sending you out to do. That's right. Yep. Well, here's a story uh, from our life, too. We were evangelists for a few years, and we decided we were going to go to seminary to kind of give us credibility, if you were. And... um we were taking classes part-time where we were both working and we had made it to the place where we could do 5,000 a month. So we were doing pretty well. And we had gone to Ohio to work at a, a, a county fair where we had a tent set up where people would come in and hear the gospel and put their faith in Christ. Well, that week, over a thousand people came to Christ. So we were high as a kite. We were so excited. Mm -hmm. We came back to Pennsylvania and I got out the catalog of the seminary and I said, "Hun, if we quit our jobs and go full time, we could graduate next summer. And this could be our life forever to see this kind of fruit, the, these people getting uh, getting to Christ. And uh, she said, if you can financially figure out how to do it. OK, well, we had a, a very large house on the outskirts of D.C. And uh, I thought, well, we could get a home equity line of credit and pay for school that way and, and figure it out in the long run. So that's what we were planning on doing. However, God had a better plan. What he did was he uh, said, go ahead and quit. So we both quit our jobs to go to seminary. And each of our bosses separately, mine in Maryland, Kathy's in Virginia, offered us consultant positions, working two to three days a week, making more than we made when we were full-time employees. And it gets better. So we got a raise to go to seminary. And then when we graduated, we graduated in 2008 when the real estate uh, bubble bursted. Well, we graduated just before that. The house that we bought for $260,000, we sold for $630,000 and started a new ministry with that in our pockets. So he did that before. I'm just excited to see what he's going to do this time. Okay. So, um, wow. All right, so we're with this project, the seminary, and the, the guy, the pastor, offers you place a place in his church, and then right. what happens? Then we got uh, another uh, gentleman, Christian gentleman, that offered to help us with public relations, which is going to get us on TV and radio spots and, and articles and magazines and newspapers in the area. We, um, uh, I just interviewed somebody that wants to help us with the marketing for the college to to draw in students. Um, I have I need seven professors. Before last week, I had five of them, and now I have six. I only need one more, and it's a course that I could teach if I had to. So, uh, and and all these people just kind of showed up. Mm. Like for instance, uh, one somebody on my advisory board who lives out in the Midwest somewhere like around Colorado, I forget, sorry about that. Um, 
she says, there's this person you need to meet. It's a lady that wrote a book called Eve, Where Are You? And it was based on her doctorate. And it had to do with the fact, and you've probably seen this, almost every church, there's more women than men in the church. And I've seen this all over the world. Yet that demographic, that 55 to 60 percent or more that are women are suppressed as far as leadership roles or doing something in the church. So she wrote a book about that and how to fix it. Well, um, so my advisory board member says, you need to talk to this lady. So I get a hold of her, find out she lives 40 minutes from my house. So her and her husband and, and Kathy and I had dinner with them twice now so far. And she's going to teach one of our leadership classes to the juniors and seniors. That's amazing. It is. I, and I'm, I'm working. I mean, I'm doing marketing material and I'm getting classes organized and stuff. But really, the big things I don't even try to do because by the time I get around to it, God's already solved the problem. So, but it's from the time that you got this idea. Now, what year was it again that you get this idea? Uh, January, January 2016. 2016. So it's 2023. Yep. So I'm just wondering what you would tell people. So you you feel like you have this idea and you do believe it's God. It's not mm -hmm. going to be like a quick thing. Like, you know, I have it, it's done. Or I'm going to sit mm. on my couch and watch TV and God is going to do it. You know, people have that idea. Hey, listen, where I am, they're like, oh, well, I got this word in there. I said, so what are you doing about it? Like, mm -hmm. I'm nothing. Well, God said it. So what would you say about that? Two things. One, first off, the first thing is there's a difference between anointing and appointing, to use biblical terminology. Uh, David was anointed to be king of Israel when he was a teenager. He was probably in his 30s when he was appointed king. Um, Joseph, in his coat of many colors, he was anointed to be one of the uh, second in command of all of Egypt when he was a child. And he was an adult. He had been sold as a slave was a slave in Potiphar's house, was a prisoner in prison in Egypt before he finally became second command of all of Egypt. So there's a difference between your anointing and appointing. Uh, for instance, Peter, the apostle Peter was anointed way back at the beginning of the book of Matthew. Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. But by the time we get to the end of the gospel of John, Jesus has already rose from the dead. All the apostles have seen him. But Peter decides that he's going to quit the ministry and go back to being a fisherman, right? So he was an, uh, anointed way back at least three and a half years ago, and now he's quitting. And then we get to Pentecost, maybe 10 days later, and he leads 5,000 or 3,000 people to Christ and, uh, and walks uh, the walk of an apostle for the rest of his life. So he was anointed at one time and appointed another time. But the apostle Paul totally the opposite. When he has his Damascus Road experience, Jesus speaks to him from the clouds, and he is anointed and appointed exactly at the same time. So our time frame depends on God. It could be immediate. It could be years later. And now what I would say about if it is years later, and what do we do in the meantime? Uh, in the book of Joshua, 
uh, they were told, this is your promised land. You're, we're going to cross the Jordan River. Some of you are going to stay here and, and settle down here. The majority are, we're going to cross Jordan, and you're going to take over what will become Israel. And uh, that was their promise. But they had to fight for it. They didn't just walk over there, and it was theirs. They fought uh, Jericho. They went to Ai and had some sin in their camp, and several Isra uh, Israelites were killed in battle. Right. This is their promised land. It wasn't a cakewalk. They had, had to still fight for it. Years later, um, Caleb, who uh, had gone into the promised land 40 years earlier with uh, the 12, you know, people, one from each tribe that went in and Joshua and Caleb were the only two that said, yeah, we can take it. Caleb's now 84 years old and he was given 44 years earlier this mountain range from Moses and God to have. So now he's an old man. Uh, the elders say, we can give you something that's easier. And he says this. He says, no, God gave that to me. I'm going to take it. And he goes and fights for it and wins. Now, he fought for it. It wasn't just given to him. He still had to fight for it, but he still got it. Well, I think that's actually because I think a lot of people believe that if God tells you to do something, it's just it's going to be like you said, it's going to be a cakewalk. I'm just going to relax. I'm just going to yeah. like slide into it. When in fact, I think a lot of times it's the opposite. That, oh, absolutely. That is a, that is a possibility. Would you agree with that? It's a, mm -hmm. God is saying, this is the possibility for you. And there right. will be and, opposition. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if you follow me, Ryan, mm -hmm. I mean, correct me where, if you believe this is. No, you're right on. I mean, think of it this way. I spent 20 years in the military, three in the Army and 17 in the Air Force. One of the things I learned is if you're at the, we call it the pointy end of the spear. In other words, the combat troops, right? Okay. You're at 10%. The other 90% is behind you. If you're in the 10%, you're going to run into conflict if there's a war. Right now, there is an intense spiritual war happening on this planet. You can see it everywhere. The atrocious things that are happening around the world. Uh, the morality, even in our own country, you can see it. So if you decide that, if you decide you're going to be a nice laid back Christian that just goes to church on Sunday, you're going to have probably zero issues because you're out of the battle anyways. But if you decide to become that 10%, the pointy end of the spear, absolutely you're going to run into to combat because you're fighting the devil and his demons. He doesn't want you to go out and tell people about Christ. First, he wants you to not even think about Christ. And then if you do, and you decide you're going to go out and do something about it with the rest of the world, he's absolutely going to try to put the kibosh on that. So you should not only not think it's going to be a cakewalk, but actually accept the fact that with the blessing comes persecution. Well, it's the, it's the cross. Yeah. And I think, you know, when people, well, what do you mean Jesus wants me to deny myself and pick up my cross and follow him? I mean, I hear that all the time. Well, isn't that just some sort of like figurative speech? He couldn't possibly actually mean that. And, you know, here's the interesting thing. I can, if I wanted to be negative or if I wanted to have a pity party, I could look back at the last 15, 10, 15 years of my life and find all sorts of places where it was hard, where it seemed virtually impossible where there was attacks. But, you know, 
I've had the time of my life because mm -hmm. I get to go out and do things with God, the creator of the universe, and he cares enough about me to let me go out and do some of the stuff that he wants to do with him. And it's not like a boss that tells me to go fix this part or make this piece of something in the factory or whatever, and I'm off by myself doing it. He's actually coming and standing right next to me, helping me do what it is that he wants to get done. And you cannot ask for a bigger high. Somebody once told me, one of my mentors said, if you want to feel the power of the Holy Spirit so intensely that the hairs on the back of your head stand up, pray with somebody and ask Jesus Christ to come into their heart. That is like the biggest high in the universe. And there is no persecution that comes anywhere close to matching that. Well, I just think, you know, if, if we have God as our treasure, mm -hmm. then we have all that we need. And it sounds trite, but it's true because with him is the adventure. With him is the provision, right? With him is, is everything. When you said, you said, seek first, right? That was the scripture. Seek first mm -hmm. the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a tendency sometimes in our world to seek God and something else. And there's always an and something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you can seriously, literally put him first, he does add everything else onto you. He gives you all the provisions you need to do whatever the mission is that he's laid on your life for, for you to do. And, uh, and you can't ask for a better way to have it. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs, because uh, I work with hundreds uh, Christian entrepreneurs, and they'll all tell you that they've done this. I have done this, where you'll go out to do something and you'll say, God, could you bless this? Mm. And then that's when I started thinking about that. That's when I got into these business meetings with God every morning. Instead of saying, God, I'm going to go do this. Can you bless it? Say, God, what are you doing? And can I have a part of it? That's a completely opposite mentality because it puts him first instead of him mm. serving us. So yes. do you define success any differently? I mean, how do you define success then? That's a good question. First to say what it might not be. Uh, uh, somebody once said to me, and I don't remember who it was, that I'm not worried about being successful. I'm worried about being successful in the wrong thing. So what is success? I think success is whatever, being able to say at the end of your life, like Paul did, I've run the race, right? And I'm ready for my prize. So I think being successful to me is doing whatever it is that God lays on your heart to do, be it helping a, an older person across the street or going to the middle of Kenya and starting an orphanage, whatever it is. And it's different for every person what success is. But I think ultimately success is accomplishing the mission, playing the part that you are given by God in life and being successful at that. Okay. Well, do you think, I mean, from what I experience, mm -hmm. I, I, I believe I'm, I'm not going to put the blame on something, but I think somehow we've carefully fostered the idea that discipleship is for the few and that there's mm. this you know that's for the few that have been called like you've been called so you know you're one of the two percent or whatever it is 
and you're the one that's called called to share and you're the one that's called to suffer and then there's this giant middle called i accepted jesus as my savior and now i just get to wait until i go to heaven and i just mm -hmm. always said to people i really don't see where jesus said you can believe and not follow right um you know you can well here's the thing james is really good at this uh there's you almost feel like between what paul says and what james says there's a contradiction in is it faith or works but really they're both saying the same thing both of them believe it's faith that does it but james goes a step further and uh, keep in mind when james wrote his epistle he was the pastor of the jerusalem church and probably two or three years before he wrote this, Ananias and Sapphira came into the church, lied to the Holy Spirit, and were struck dead. So he's got that in the back of his head while he's writing his epistle. And he says, faith without works is dead. And what he means is, say, for instance, you have an ailment, and you've got two choices. I can go to the doctor and have him give me some antibiotics, or I can have somebody lay their hands on me and heal me. Whichever one you do says which one you have faith in. Mm. All right? So... Faith is activated by action. Like the, the woman with the issue of blood that went and touched Christ's garment, uh, she took an action because she had faith. So they're almost synonymous, but it is faith, but it's realized by action. Kind of get that? Yeah. Yeah. So if you really, can you, you can accept Christ and sit there, it's a miserable existence, if you really want to have the full flavor of what it means to be not just saved, but a child of the king of the universe, be an ambassador for Christ, be a warrior, be a, a prince or princess of God. Why would you want to miss that out, miss out on that? And I think, I think a lot of us Christian leaders, pastors, especially are to blame for not, I guess, a business word marketing that saying here's here's what is in store for you come on let's go get it imagine here look at um way back the first miracle in the gospel of john was the wedding feast where jesus turned water into wine they're at the wedding feast they run out of wine mary the mother of jesus goes up to jesus and say hey we've run out of wine today i would think she wants me to go to 7-Eleven and pick up some more wine. <laughs> that ain't what she wanted him to do, right? She wanted him to do a miracle. And he had not done any public miracles. And what did he say to her? She, he, says, he says, it's not my time, right? So here's what I think. Jesus, Son of God, complete communion with God the Father, knows when his ministry is going to start, right? And it's not today. And Mary says, turn water into wine. And God changes the entire future history of the world in order to give wine to a wedding, right? She had God's ear to such an extent. She was such a child of God that he was willing to change his entire plan to let her friend not be embarrassed by running out of wine at the wedding. So if you think God can do that simple miracle that really had no effect on the whole universe, Imagine what he could do for us or what he wants to do for us. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. And um, 
I love how you said um, you're not just saved, like, but you're you actually. We need to tell people what it means to be a child of God. A hundred percent. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it says in um, John fifteen eight. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. A lot of people look at that as being the fruit listed in Galatians, but those are the fruit of the Spirit. You know, love, hope, joy, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness. If you go through and read when Jesus used the word fruit, it either means real fruit, like a fig or a date or whatever, or it means uh, converts. Right? So what he's saying is, if you really want to be his disciple— Go out and win the world to Christ. Wow. I mean, I I always think, gee, I wish everybody knew how much God loves them. Right? Oh, it's amazing how much he loves us. It's and not just that God loves everybody, right? But that he loves this person in particular. And I yep. think that's easier for people to believe is well, God loves everyone. I'm like, but God, but do you know that God loves you in particular? That's right. He loves you. He would die if you were the only sinner on the planet. He would have still died for mm-hmm. you. So I tell my wife almost every day, uh, you're God's favorite. And you know what? So are you. <laughs> so can you just do, um, I mean, not, I'm just speaking to the, this is what you do. So can you just do a uh, short gospel presentation for our listeners and then do an invitation? Sure, absolutely. Well, let me ask. Let me ask the people listening first. Is um, probably the most important question anybody is ever going to ask you, and are and, and this is the question: Are you one hundred percent sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that if you died today, you would actually go to heaven? And it, some people, when I ask that question, they say, "Well, I've go to church, or I've been baptized." Says something different. And let me tell you my story and then i'm going to show you uh, real quick what the bible says i was um i grew up in the projects of los angeles i was i ran with a gang uh, i shot at my first human when i was 12 years old to get into a gang by the time i was 14 my parents moved us across country to get me into a better environment and sure enough it was now i was raised at up to that point catholic and most of my family today is still catholic well we moved to, to massachusetts from los angeles and uh, me and my younger brother and sister had to stay with my aunt uh, Barbara up in Vermont. And uh, she was Baptist. And she had a rule, if you're going to be in her house, you have to go to church. And Baptists go to church more than Catholics. They go Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Friday night. And uh, so I did. And I started making friends. And then she announces, we're going to Bible camp. Well, I grew up in the city. I had no idea what Bible mm-hmm. camp is. Turns out it's Sunday school in the mornings, sports in the afternoons, and then guest speakers at night, motivational guys, whatever. Well, Wednesday night, they had this guy speaking, and uh, I don't even really remember what he said. I'm sitting in the back with the other troublemakers just kind of goofing and stuff. And then we stand up and we sing a song, and he asks a question that I just asked you that I'd never heard before. He says, are you 100% sure if you died, you'd go to heaven? Up to that very second, I was really a 14-year-old atheist. I was very arrogant, did not believe in God, wanted nothing to do with God. My folks actually, even though they were Catholics, I called them CEO Catholics, Christmas and Easter only, right? So their lifestyle was not one to mimic. So So I I did not, but as soon as he asked that question, now I'm a 14-year-old tough kid, 
I started crying because I knew there really was a God. I knew I wasn't going to heaven. And and I wanted to. I just met a bunch of friends that were, and I had to have whatever it was they had. So I can remember to this day getting out of my seat and walking down the aisle and getting on my knees in the front on the on the sawdust and whatnot. And I found out later on that my aunt and uncle and my cousins and all my friends that I'd made since I'd been up there followed me down to the front to be with me when I accepted Christ. So somebody opened up their Bible and showed me four simple verses how I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if something happened to me, I would be in heaven. And I prayed with them. And now I know to this day, that was in 1971. And I know still to this day that if something happened to me, I would wake up in the arms of Jesus. So give me a minute. Don't don't tune out yet. Let me show you. It's the simplest thing in the world. You know, if you wanted to learn about how the world starts, you would go to Genesis. If you want to see how it ends, the book of Revelation. If you want to see how to get to heaven, right smack in the middle of the New Testament is the book of Romans. And it's got four verses in there. The first one says, kind of bad news, it says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin is just when you do anything that you know innately God doesn't like, right? Lying, uh, you know, kids beating up their brother or sister, you know, talking back to their parents, uh, adults. If you, one of the biggest sins I think going on in the world right now is you need something copied. So you go to the office and use the office's paper and ink, all right? That's stealing. That's a sin, right? We all, you could think, if you sat there for a minute, you could think of probably way too many sins that you've done. I know I can. Just today, I can think of sins I've done. So we've all sinned. And then and then the next verse uh, says, the wages of sin is death. Now, the Bible has two kinds of death, physical death. We all know someday we're going to be put in a box and stuck in the ground, and, and that's death. But the other death is spiritual death, which is separation from God. When we sin and we're born in sin, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, we can't get into heaven because God... Heaven's perfect and God can't allow imperfection in there or it wouldn't be perfect anymore. It's kind of like if uh, you had a sick friend and they're in a clean room in the hospital and you have a bad cold, they're not going to let you in that clean room to be with your friend because they could get sick. But you know what? Even if you had the sniffles, they're not going to let you in there because you still might infect them. Same way with heaven. You can't get into heaven with your sins, but God wants us to be there. We want to be there. So what can we do? We've already sinned, so that's already gone. Well, here's what happened. Uh, Bible says that God proved his love to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. He never sinned, never did anything wrong. And then when he's about 32, 33 years old, they nailed him to a cross to take our punishment for us. And there's seven things that Jesus said on the cross. Two of them are significant. Uh, the, the first one he said it was significant was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the moment that hits. our sins were poured on Jesus' shoulders, and he actually became sin for us. He became a thief. He became a murderer. He became a pedophile. He became the most heinous sinner that you can think of. All of that was poured on him, and God cannot stay there and left. And Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? And then three hours later, he says, it is finished. The sin had been paid for. And he was able to close his eyes and die physically. And uh, and he did that for you and me. Now, here's the most significant thing. And I'm going to ask you a question. Most of you are going to know the answer. Uh, three days later on Easter, what did he do? Yeah, that's right. He rose from the dead. 
all right? And that proved that he was God and that his death on the cross was sufficient to pay for our sins. Now, I know if I died three days later, I couldn't decide, well, I've been dead long enough. I'm just going to get up off this slab and walk around. I couldn't do that. You couldn't do that. He could do that. And that's what he did. He died for us and rose again on the third day. So what do we do about that? The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. All you have to do is understand that he died for you, and you just have to accept that. Let me give you a real quick illustration. It's like, you, say you decided on a career change, and you want to become an international jewel thief. And you go out and you rob a jewelry store, but you're really bad at it. You get caught the first time. All right. So you're sitting there. You get convicted. The judge has found you guilty. Obviously, you're guilty. Everybody knows you're guilty. You know you're guilty. And now you're back in court and they're getting ready to, to give sentence. And somebody in the back, maybe a brother or sister or a husband or wife or somebody uh, gets up and says, Your Honor, I want to take their punishment for them. Put me in jail and let them free. Now, three people have to agree. The judge has to agree. The person that got up to defend you and wants to take your place has to agree, and you have to agree. In eternity, two of the three people have already agreed. God the Father is the judge. He says, yes, I'll let Jesus take the punishment for your sin. Not only did Jesus agree, he actually did the punishment before you even decided whether you were going to accept it or not. He just went ahead and did it, hoping you would. So the only person left is us. We have to decide that I'm going to accept, simply accept by faith what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And the way we do that is we just ask God. So if this sounds like something you want to do, and I pray, pray, pray so much that it is, then uh, I want you to just pray these words and I want you to mean it. This is not a Harry Potter chant. This is real life. God has promised if you put your trust in Jesus, you're on your way to heaven. And the way we do that is we say something like this, say, um, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I know Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I ask you to forgive me. I ask Jesus Christ to come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. And I ask this the best way I know how. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, first send Sherry an email and tell her that you did that. She wants to celebrate with you. But second, you're on your way to heaven. The verse says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't say if you call on the name of the Lord and get baptized and go to church the rest of your life, you'll be saved. It doesn't say if you start giving a tithe and 10% of your income, you'll be saved. It says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Not might be saved, not hope I'm saved, shall be saved. This is a contract. Now, later on today, maybe later in the week, you're going to do something. You're going to sin again. And the devil's going to whisper in your ear and they're going to say, see, you didn't mean that or you wouldn't do this. He's a liar right? He's a liar and a punk, all right? He just wants to get you off track. That verse is a guarantee. It's not about emotion. It's not about um, whether you're not going to sin again or not. It's about putting your faith in Christ. If you do sin, tell God you're sorry. First uh, John 1, 9 says that if you confess your sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And that's a promise to Christians only. That book was written to Christians, to nobody else. So, if you sin, just give it to him. Uh, somebody once said the difference between religion and a relationship with God is religion. You say, I just made a mistake. I better hope dad doesn't find out. And 
a relationship with God is I made a mistake. I got to go tell dad. That's good. Well, Bob, you have been such a blessing today. And I just thank you so much for being on and just bringing your wealth of experience. And I like how you left your, your own story to the end. Uh, because mm. it's amazing how you began and what God has done with your life. Um, and just, just because you've chosen to believe in him and partner with him and all you guys listening, I hope you were blessed by today's episode and we will see you in a couple of weeks on the grace chronicles.